What's up, bingers? I hope you're having a great day. And if you're not, well, I hope this episode will cheer you up. I'm joined today by a guy who's done it all. He was a Marine, then a police detective, and then a stand-up comedian who hangs out with Colts football legend turned comedian Pat McAfee. His background is almost as interesting as his podcast, 1041. Please welcome Todd McComas. The internet's full of true crime podcasts. More and more are added to the list every day. Figuring out where to start or where to go next can be overwhelming. But have no fear, I'm here to help. I'm Bob Ruff, and this is the place to find your next true crime binge. All right, Todd, I've got you have a an interesting bio to say the least <laughs> when uh <laughs> when I start looking at you the, your your show that we're going to talk about today is is 1041's podcast. But I see you were uh you were a former marine, you were a police detective for Indiana State Police. You've hosted radio shows, you're a stand-up comedian, you've done a documentary about the Tiger King, like like <laughs> How has your career taken all these twists and turns? Where'd you start? You, I assume you started off in the Marines. I did. Yeah. I uh, was supposed to play college baseball, but I was a bit of, um, you know, I don't know what kind of language you use on here. So I'll just say I was just, I would blow things off easily, you know? Yeah. Like I wasn't a disciplined <laughs> kid. So yeah. I just, I goofed that off. And then I uh, ended up uh, thinking, well, you know, what? I should get some discipline in my life, you know, uh-huh. like I, I, I was starting to recognize I might have an issue with sticking to things. So I, uh, joined the Marine Corps and uh-huh. they made me a military policeman and I got discipline in my life and work ethic and all those things that they teach you. And when I went back to school, I, I was like, wow, well, I might as well go for criminal justice. Right. I got this uh-huh. military police background. I was working with guys that were you know, reservists who were also uh, Dallas cops and Texas Highway Patrolmen and stuff. So they had these cool stories, man. We would sit around and drink. Right. And I was like, ah, that sounds way more like police work than me just sitting here guarding this plane all night right. for 12 hours, you know? So, <laughs> but did anyone uh, ever steal a plane on your watch? No one. I have a clean, the perfect record. I perfect mean, track record. No one. I, I, I probably guarded a thousand aircraft in my life. Not one of them got stolen. So. Good track record. Very impressive. Yeah. I didn't even get a letter of, of, you know, meritorious service for that. I thought I deserved it, but, um, so yeah, I, it was boring, right? It was during the Gulf war and I, I was supposed to, I was part of a a unit that was supposed to ship off to the, you know, the Gulf for the first Gulf war and, uh, we never made it. So I just ended up being on this Marine Corps air station, just garden stuff all the time. But I had these. Marine Corps reservists that were with us that, uh, you know, these guys had cool cop jobs. They, they came mm-hmm. from Dallas PD and all that, these places. So they, when they would tell these stories, I was like, man, I gotta, I gotta do that. So I went to school for criminal justice and started applying at every police department I could, uh, anywhere that I thought I might want to live also. And I ended up getting, uh, hired by the Indiana State Police. And so what, I, what, when you were, where are you from? I'm from Indiana. I'm from a small town just outside of Indianapolis. Okay, gotcha. So you're not yeah. far for or that's not far. I'm I'm in Michigan, but barely in Michigan. Yeah. 
Yeah, I was wondering, it's like when you are when you have the whole country to pick from, why you picked Indiana as one of the places you wanted to live. Yeah, I applied everywhere. I applied for Kentucky State Police, Louisville PD, um, Lexington PD, Columbus, Ohio Police Department. I mean, all over. Any big, Indianapolis, obviously, any big agency that was within like the tri-state area. I wanted to uh-huh. stay Midwest. I, I, you know, I was like, ah, I don't want to really be NYPD or LAPD, I don't think, because I'm, right, I'm a small right. town kid, you know? So, uh, yeah, when they gave me a job at first, I was like, you know, maybe I'll do this for a bit and I'll finish my degree and I'll try to go federal. Because, I, you know, I was like, my vision was a state trooper, you just on the interstate all the time writing tickets, working mm-hmm. crashes. But quickly, I was like, oh, no, they're, they're full service and they have all these other specialized investigative units. I knew right away. I'm not a ticket writer. I need right. to be an investigator. And uh, I was. I would always hang out around the detectives and watch what they did. And they were working murders all the time. Because in small town Indiana, the Indiana State Police are the primary law enforcement agency. Because right. Indiana's full of one, two, five cop towns, right? And they don't have the resources. So if somebody gets murdered or a bank gets robbed or something, here would come the Indiana State Police. So I was like, all right, plenty of cool stuff to do here. I need to become a detective. Uh, I applied with only two and a half years on, which the all the veterans just ridiculed me. Oh, you think you're going to be a detective already? And I was like, I don't know. I, just, I probably should practice at interviewing for jobs. Right. And I, I got it. And they were pissed, so pissed. And I got it in Indianapolis, like our biggest post. Our biggest oh, area. Nice. So um, I moved from this podunk, you know, little area that I was at, uh, being a, a road trooper to Indianapolis, the big city, and I got to be a detective now. And, I mean, I took to it like a fish out of water. I loved it. Loved it. I, I was like, this is what I've always wanted to do. Like, these guys know what's going on all the time. And now I mm-hmm. know what's going on all the time. I'm plugged in. And right. I, you know, I quickly, I was working with a lot of federal agencies and, uh, I went, went undercover after a six year stint of shirt and tie detective work and somehow became the foremost authority on wiretaps for the United State Police. I just got interested in it and we weren't doing them and we had the equipment and it was just sitting there collecting dust and I had had shoulder surgery. So I was on light duty for a while uh-huh. in the office. And I was like, well, how about instead of me just doing working on reports and stuff, how about I figure out how to use that equipment? It costs like five hundred thousand dollars. It's just sitting there, right? I'm like, okay. <laughs> so I just grabbed the manuals and went through. I would call. We had a contract with the company, you know, for maintenance and any kind of help you needed. So I would call them. I would ask them to explain stuff. I learned the equipment, and then came the need one day to for the state police to do a, a wiretap on a cell phone, and I was like, I think we're ready. Let's do it. I can I can run this end as long as we got people that can hook it up with the phone company. We're ready to go, and boom, I did them for the rest of my career. So you were on wiretaps for for then until you retired. Yeah, often I you know it wasn't like a full time job because you didn't always have one going. So I would still do my undercover work uh-huh. um, in between, and then I transitioned uh, toward the end of my career. Uh, we got a new state police superintendent, and he wanted to start an electronic surveillance unit, like an official one. He liked the fact the U.S. Marshals at the time were the only resource you had in Indiana if you wanted to track a fugitive by their cell phone. They had this mm-hmm. truck that they would use to basically track down the phone right to somebody's door. 
and then oh, wow. boom, go in and arrest him. So he wanted a truck. So my buddy, he put my buddy in charge of creating that unit. And he called me first and he's like, Hey, you know, wiretaps, you've, you've done historical tracking on phones. You want to come on this unit, help me get it going? I'm like, yeah. So me, I'm and another buddy started the electronic surveillance unit for the Indiana State Police. And we just went around tracking down fugitives by their phones. And then I also would cross over into the, the wiretap side whenever needed to help run the equipment. Did you watch the wire? I did. It's very realistic. Is it? Yeah, I actually, when I was being trained um, by the company who provided us with the tracking truck, uh, we went to Baltimore for two weeks and trained with the the unit that the wire was based on. Oh, wow. And it looked just like it, man. They were in this old, like, shipping warehouse building, just like in the, you know, just big, open, huge building, just like in uh-huh. the uh, the show. And, uh, yeah, it was it was really cool. They... Because they are, you know, the guy that was running that unit when the wire got going, he's considered the godfather of of cell phone tracking and wiretaps. So he was a really cool dude to to be around for two weeks. That's, yeah. that's freaking yeah. awesome. It was a lot like it. So how do you go from you're the, the, the biggest authority in the Indiana State Police on wiretaps and electronic communications to next thing you know, you're starring in a documentary about the tiger king (laughs) that came from my comedy side i uh i you know i was doing stand-up for about the last seven eight years of my state police career Uh and it was getting to the point where i was seriously considering you know several points in the last few years of just retiring early and just pursuing Uh stand-up comedy i was part owner in three comedy clubs at that Uh time and um I just, you know, I was like, ah, I don't know. I'm pretty comfortable in my living, you know, like my insurance and all that stuff. So I, I never really pulled uh, the pin. But then, I, you know, I became friends with Pat McAfee, who okay. is a huge sports radio personality and social media personality now. And I think it's the largest sports show on YouTube right now. So he, uh, we became friends, and he was doing stand-up. I was doing stand-up. He asked me and, and, and my best friend to start opening for him. He would do these mm-hmm. huge theater shows throughout Indiana. And we did, hit it off. And then he was he was getting bored with the NFL. He was the uh-huh. best punter in the league by far. Yeah, for those of you that don't know, Pat McAfee was the punter for the, for the Colts. Yeah, for uh, the Indianapolis for Colts. And I remember year. Years back, when he would be on Bob and Tom all the time, and yes. I don't think he was doing stand-up comedy then, but he was just funny as shit. So they would always bring him back on, and then he started yeah. doing comedy. Yeah, after Peyton Manning left, and um, and he took uh, Jeff Saturday with him, who was the center for the Colts. Jeff Saturday was an every Tuesday he was on the Bob and Tom show during yeah. the the NFL season. Well, when he moved away. Then they found Pat. Pat had gotten kind of famous because of jumping into the canal and getting arrested, you know, maybe right. having a couple <laughs> too many beers. And, uh, right. but he was so funny. And he went on the, the Bob and Tom show to talk about it. And he was so funny and self deprecating about it. They were like, hey, why don't you be our every Tuesday NFL guy to represent the Colts? And he did for a couple of years and he was so good at it. He, and then he started, you know, he's around stand up comedians a lot because of that. Uh-huh. And he was like, I think I could do it. I was always the funny guy telling stories in the locker room. You know, I kind of helped uh-huh. court. So he started doing stand up and he was so good at it. 
so good without without even trying, putting putting none of the work into it that you usually have to. It was just yeah. natural. And uh so we started opening for him and became great friends and he uh at one point got kind of an offer from Barstool Sports, like, hey, if you ever think about leaving the NFL, we'd be interested in kind of partnering in something. And uh boy he took him up on it and he asked me if I would help him get things going on the Indianapolis end of that relationship. And next thing you know, um, you know, it was a no brainer. It's gonna be more money, you know, cool job, right. great insurance at the time with Barstool Sports. So I'm like, oh, I was been podcasting for years on podcasts no one ever listened to. I'm like, you mean I get a I get to host a big podcast on a big platform? He's like, yeah, and I get to be on your podcast, and he's like, yeah. So I'm like, awesome, let's do it. So from there, I just started doing radio and all that stuff. And when eventually, when I left, Pat went out on my own. Um, it was strictly selfish on my part. I wanted to finally do stand up comedy full time. Uh-huh. And I wasn't, my brain wasn't nearly as good as everybody else that worked for Pat as far as sports research and knowing constantly what's going on with sports. I really had to work at that. Yeah. And I wasn't, a, it didn't come to me naturally because I didn't really have the passion for mm-hmm. sports to that depth. So uh, we had a talk. He was like, yeah, man, go for it. If you ever need to come back, you're welcome to, which was a gift. And um, I went on my own. And uh, I started two podcasts right away that I knew I wanted to do. And one was my true crime podcast that I still have called 1041. And then I wanted to, I love documentaries. So I was like, I'm going to start a a podcast that kind of in a funny way with other comedians breaks down documentaries. Mm -hmm. And of course, Tiger King was happening. So we had to do three, four episodes on that. And uh, I found out that one of the guys, Tim Stark, who was a main player in Tiger King, lived in southern Indiana, about an hour and a half south of me. Got a hold of him on social media. I was like, hey, man, can I come out and film some stuff at your place? And he's like, yeah, sure, come on down. So I hired a camera crew and went down there and hung out at his place and kind of did, yeah, I called it a documentary. I guess it's more of like an exclusive interview. But uh, uh-huh. he told all these cool behind-the-scenes stories. The guy's really funny. I got to see all these. He had more tigers than Joe Exotic at his place. Oh, so really? it was crazy. Yeah. Wait, in Indiana, he had more tigers? In or? southern Indiana. No yeah. shit. Not anymore. <laughs> State Attorney General's <laughs> office put an end to it. But yeah. After the documentary? <laughs> yeah, yeah. That documentary <laughs> caused all the dominoes to fall. I mean, they went after every one of these private, example, uh, private exotic animal zoos, and he was on that list. And um, yeah, it was, it was nuts, man. Like, I literally the whole time i'm interviewing him he would just trade off animals he'd be like hang on and he'd go grab another animal and put it on his lap so one time i'm interviewing him there's three different um spider monkeys running around like climbing all over me hugging me trying to kiss me on the cheek the whole time i'm trying to talk <laughs> jumping up and flipping tables over or whatever and uh and then he the scary one was he put this female baboon on his lap and i was and just had a little leash thing on her and you know, he would put a peanut or M&M in his mouth and she'd come give him a kiss and take the peanut M&M adorable. But at the whole time I'm like, if that thing freaks out like those freaking spider monkeys, it's going to rip both my arms off and beat me to death with them. You know? Right. Yeah. So, but it was great, man. That guy's life hasn't done too well since, but uh, (laughs) I feel bad about it, but that happened. And it was funny because, 
I put it out, you know, just on my own, you know, make, get my money back, I think, from what I invested in it, a little bit more. And uh, I, my manager calls me and says, hey, I don't know what's going on, but this production company, Northside or North South Productions, they, they do the Practical Jokers TV show. They, uh, they want to talk to you. They got a hold of me and said, hey, you manage him. We need to talk to him right away. And I was like, okay, well, shit, I guess we better do that. So right. we did. And they were like, we think you have the next best TV show ever. And I'm like, what? What is it? You know? And they were like, we watched yeah. the little documentary you did. What if we took you and sent you all across the country finding all the other Joe Exotics? You know? And I'm like, oh, that would be really fun. Yeah. Right. Let's do it. For sure. Yeah. So we had like four meetings that day. And they're like really rushing to try to get this thing through. And then uh, they were like, okay, it looks good. Like we're all done. It just all we got to do now is have a meeting with our agent at CAA. And then once uh, they give the little rubber stamp of approval, we're off and running. And I'm like, cool, let's do it. So we have that meeting, the fifth meeting of the day at about 9 o'clock p.m. my time, I think. And it took all 30 seconds for that dude to go, eh, I think there's enough Tiger King stuff going on right now. Well, I just cut the audio and put it on your podcast. And I was like, oh, God. <laughs> and it was done. The production company was like, quick well, roller coaster. Well, we're done now. And I'm like, what? You guys believed in this thing. Get another agent. And <laughs> right. uh, they were, my, my manager was furious. He was like, yeah, he's probably got four other clients trying to do stuff that my client's trying to do. And uh, anyway, it crashes and burns. And my manager was so mad. He created the live tour for the Impractical Jokers. So he's like, what if we create a live tour? You getting all these awesome stories from all these cast members that you're friends with now on stage. I was like, yeah, that sounds great. So I got a hold of John Ranke, Saf, uh, Josh Dial, Barbara Fisher, and they were all about it. So we wrote this show, and now we're going to be going all around the country, all around the world, actually. we got to go to the U.K. and Ireland um, with really? doing this live show with me and the ta- cast of Tiger King. <laughs> it's crazy. But- no shit. Has that started yet? Uh, we've done two shows, basically for the purposes of filming them for like packaging materials to pitch. Right. And it's it's gone great. Or three shows, sorry. And it's gone great. Um, you know, COVID is still hurting those big venues a little bit. For so sure, yeah. So they're kind of waiting. And then Tiger King 2, the second season's coming out. Uh-huh. So it's been pushed back, I think, eight times. Mm-hmm. It was supposed to be last spring, and it's... So it's they just announced, I think, that it's coming out here in November or something. So all the venues wanted to wait until the release of the second season to have these live shows because it's going to be right. relevant again, right? And, yeah, so it should start back up here in November or December or January. Well, that's awesome. You, I think the, the part of the pushback for Tiger King, I happen to have a, a, a little birdie attorney that I know mm-hmm. that was working with Joe Exotic. Oh, with the White House. Oh. So I don't know if you remember the whole when the limo was outside on yeah. Trump's last day or whatever. Yeah. So I was told in November by, by an attorney that was working on the case that it's a done deal. Trump's going to pardon him. I lost a bunch of money to friends of mine because I was like, oh. I bet you a hundred bucks. I bet you a hundred bucks Trump, Trump pardons <laughs> him. And then he ended up not doing it. Like, God damn it, just one more thing. 
You son of a bitch. <laughs> that <He> sucks. <laughs> yeah. I remember that day because John Ranky was sitting in that limo forever and he kept putting out videos and I, I texted him. I'm like, dude, you, you getting him out today? And he's like, yep, they're saying he's coming. And then they never happened. I was like, oh crap. Yeah. From what I understood from my, from my unnamed source, it was a, it was supposed to be a done deal, and yeah. then it, uh, it ended up not being one. Well, that's what John said, so they must have been telling him the same thing. I, I, you know, and I think it's a travesty. Like, I don't believe the the conspiracy to commit murder case at all. I, I don't. I mean, I used to do undercover work for a long time, and if I ever went to a prosecutor, and again, I'm getting my knowledge just from the documentary, but... Um, if I were to go to a prosecutor and say, all right, there's this guy who's trying to hire somebody, a hitman to kill this, this lady he doesn't like. And my source introduced me to him as a hitman. And I talked to him several occasions, recorded several calls with him. And he never bit once on my offer to do, to do this for him. But then my, my source who has pending federal charges said that he told him he gave this guy $3,000 to go to it. And, right. you know, and John Ranke and everybody else, they're like, no, he gave him $3,000 of severance to get the hell off the park. You know? Right. So uh, I, my prosecutor would have laughed me out of their office. I mean. And all like, that and that bitch Carol Baskins is still walking free. Right? <laughs> <laughs> God, what a. What a ride, man. And then the, the, I'm super interested, and we're going to get into the case that we're going to talk about today a little bit, but I'm super interested in your path as a comedian, because I'm a huge stand-up comedy fan. As you oh, were talking nice. about venues. I'm going, to, um, I'm, I'm going to Milwaukee in two weeks to go see Tom Segura. I'm sure you're familiar <sighs> with Yes. Yeah. Super stoked yes. about it. But we just got, um, from there, we just got an email. That venue uh, just said that you have to show a proof of vaccine to let, to let you in, so people were, you know, they're they're re- issuing refunds if people don't have vaccines right. and stuff. So they're, they're at least they're taking steps to try to stay. Because I had tickets to go see him in Vegas last May that got canceled because of the, yeah. the pandemic. And now the Delta variant, like it, it's going to be another cycle of shutting down venues, I'm sure. But yeah, you know, it is what it is. But I always love stand up. I'm like you, I was just a fan. And then I got dared. Well, I got not dared, but pressured to try it once by an ex girlfriend. And she had signed me up without my knowledge, and then she was like, oh, "First, like an open mic it? night." Yeah, yeah, and then she was like, "You're gonna back out, or you're gonna be a man, get up there and give it a shot." <laughs> so I, I you know, just got really drunk and went up there and tried it, and I don't remember my set to be honest, but everybody seemed to enjoy it, so they wanted me to come <laughs> back, and I just, I just got hooked, man. It was like crack. I was really into jujitsu at that time. I get really addicted to things, right? Yeah, and, and what gets me hooked initially is I try it, and I'm not good at it, and mm-hmm. people are way better than me and beating the shit out of me or whatever, and then I'm like, oh, I don't like that feeling. I got to be better than everybody in this room every time, right? And I'll just, just go, 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 go. I have a sickness for it. I just can't. I just work one thousand times harder than I even need to to try to accomplish that, and that's what happened with stand up. You know, I started. I got that quick reaction. All my friends are like, oh, you're really good. Keep doing it. And then I went to other open mics, and I'm like sucking compared to everybody else that went up. You know, I, I, I didn't even think of all they've been doing it seven years. Of course they're better than you. I was just like, mm-hmm. I don't care. When I'm in that lineup, I want to be the best person. Right. So I just became sick with it. Just 
studying, talking to, to professional comedians that were in the area, picking their brains. Fortunately, I was always a guy that I think because I, I was older, I was 38 when I first started doing stand up. So the pros related to me more because a lot of them were more mm-hmm. advanced in life than the open micers. Right. So we could have real life conversations. So they like hanging out with me. And therefore, they were, were very generous with passing on knowledge and offering me help. And I got good fast. I, it didn't hurt that I had all these incredible cop stories to tell, you know, for my career. Right. So it made me different. And uh, I just started becoming a working comedian pretty quickly, you know, and it was good side money. And they got to the point where it's like, oh, this could be full time money. And then, um, especially like after my stint with Pat, you know, God love that guy. He, he's so generous, man. He, you know, I had borrowed fame. Really, uh-huh. I had a sh- shit ton of people that knew who I was and liked me, all because he was nice enough to be like, you know what, I really like this guy and I enjoy him, so I'm going to share him with you. It's a hard industry to to break into. I know. So my hard. wife has outlawed me. From because I was kind of like you, where I was always the guy telling the funny story. I was I was a fireman for sixteen years. Oh, nice! Always the guy, t- you know, telling the funny stories and 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 talking shit. And we went and another buddy of mine went and did an open mic for the first time last year, and it went pretty well. And I literally got off stage, and my wife said, "No, you're not," because I'm just like you. She's like, "No," because you will. <laughs> That's how I ended. Up. I took early retirement from the fire department to do the podcast because I started doing it and it started to grow, and I wanted to make it bigger and. And just went all in to the point where I left the fire department. She's like, yeah. no, you're not doing, no, we're not doing this now where you're going <laughs> to decide you're going to try to go be a comedian somewhere. But I'm always, I'm, I'm super interested in not in personally doing it, but, but for people that made it uh, in comedy, cause it's, it's, you know, you hear about the guys that open mics forever and then yeah. maybe you're making a couple of bucks here and there and to get to the point where you can actually make a career out of it. It's really impressive. Yeah. And especially like in today's climate with comedy, it's, it's all about ticket sales. I mean, and I get it. I was part owner of a club, and I booked those three clubs for years. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, if if a comedian can be as funny, uh, funnier than everyone, but if they don't sell one damn ticket because of who they are, it's tough, right? I mean, right. You, it's all about getting people in that door and buying tickets and buying alcohol and food. And <laughs> right. if you don't have a bunch of people doing that, you no longer have a business. And so you sometimes you have to sacrifice like you know you keep your your small list of favorites that nobody knows and you mix them in with your your heavies like Tom Segura and these people and mm-hmm. um which Tom Segura is one of the best he's he and Burt Kreischer are two of my favorite comedians so Me I'm not too, saying yeah. he isn't in that category of funny I'm just saying there are people that you don't know and and there are people that aren't that funny but are super famous and will make you a lot of money and you have to sacrifice and, and put them on the calendar, which squeezes out hundreds of thousands of, you know, really, really funny, talented nobodies. Right. Well, before we run out of time, we got want to talk a little bit about now about, about 1041. So uh, 1041, I think I know the origin of the name, but I'll let you explain it. So where, what is 1041? 1041 is a police 10 code for marking on duty. So every time a cop would come on duty, gets right. on the radio and calls dispatch and says 1041. So the idea behind it, my first season was about the Burger Chef murders, an unsolved Mm -hmm. murder in Indiana, and I actually helped with it back in the day a little bit. So, and my one of my best friends managed the case for twenty years, so I knew he retired. I had access to him, and I thought, you know, I I have some kind of hook, something to make it different. I'm like, I'm gonna call it Tim Forty One because I'm gonna 
put my listeners, I'm going to mark them on duty. They're marking uh-huh. on duty with me, and now they're going to have a job to do. You know, get the word out, you know. Uh, right. Try to try to get this out to as many people as possible. Try to stir up tips or whatever. So that's that's where it came from. Nice. Yeah, we use this uh, similar 10 codes even at the fire department. So I, I yeah. assume that's what it was when I saw yep. it. But Totally. Now, so you – Real quick, so you, you do you still do because you had a podcast called for, for Life and another one called Fun Town. Are those still both operational? They're not. Fun Town, I did with two of my friends at uh, the Bob and Tom show, and they got really super busy. They Their roles got expanded, which is great for them and their careers. And um, they just didn't have as much time to do it. So it was hard for the three of us to negotiate uh, schedules. Uh-huh. So we had to end that one. And then uh, four life podcast was me and my ex fiance. Enough said. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So why did that one stop, Todd? Yeah. <laughs> why <did> that- <laughs> we're, we're actually still really good friends, but the dynamics just not, you know, the same. Not so. co host friends anymore. <laughs> yeah. We don't live together, so we have nothing to talk about. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> Who are you banging this week? I don't know. Who you bang, you know, that's right. <laughs> So, so ten four and and from what I understand, I, I've I've listened to a few of them. I haven't gotten gotten through obviously the whole catalog, mm-hmm. but the but ten forty one's kind of gone through some evolutions, hasn't? it? Because because season sure. one is is where I've been listening is like long form on the Burger Chef murders. Yeah, it's and so what is the so for for people that are listening to this and thinking about checking the podcast out, like what can they expect now when they listen? What is that? What has that evolution been? And what is you know ten forty one become now what can they expect if they listen in sure and thanks for recognizing that because it's been quite the evolution i've experimented a lot with the season two part of it i had another unsolved case lined up originally that uh-huh. in philadelphia that i was supposed to go to that was a real doozy and i had the lead investigator locked in he was giving me exclusive access and stuff and then uh, covid hit couldn't travel mm-hmm. couldn't get there to do it so right I had to keep it going. And uh, Audio Boom, my ad network that I work with, they were like, well, you know, you're probably going to have to go from being a serial podcast to something that's episodic. And I'm like, okay. So I, I played around with some things. But what it kind of settled into, I think, if you look through the season two feed now, primarily it's members of law enforcement or the military uh, or former criminal even uh, telling some really amazing story, something that, you know, mm-hmm. really moves me in one way or another. So I bring them on and, and they share. So I try to do that most episodes. I am not doing well enough to afford a $2,000 a month booker. So sometimes it gets tough <laughs> to get a guest every week. So right. I mix in there true crime stories. I'll just, you know, do research and, and on, uh, you know, like the Amazon review killer, for example, that was a recent right. episode. And then I will tell that account and try to, I try to still make it a little bit different. Like when I can kind of explain things from the police perspective or from the mm-hmm. detective's perspective and things, you know, that the average listener might not know about what goes on in the inside. And, you know, that's my little way of trying to make it unique. Otherwise, it's just regurgitating the same information every other true crime podcast does. So there's some of that. I bring a friend on from time to time, Stuart Huff, who's my creative partner in this true crime documentary that we're working on. And he just has an amazing knack for and passion for finding just weird, obscure stories from history. 
and exploring the hell out of them. So I'll bring him on sometimes and we'll go through some of those stories. And they're not necessarily true crime every time. It's just some cool story that probably most people haven't heard of in great detail, at least. Right. Does any of your uh, your comedy background leak into the, the true crime podcast? It, well, as far as me uncovering things? Or no, as, as far as like the tone of the podcast, I mean, oh, that, yeah, comedic it, tendencies. It does, you know, and it depends what the subject matter is. But I, I would say you'd be hard pressed to find very many episodes where I don't slide some kind of funny commentary in there or a thought, right? at least. You know, <laughs> I tried right. to when I originally kicked off season two, I thought, you know, let's combine the comedy and true crime, and it's and there's a couple podcasts out there to do that, but uh. I was like, I'm just going to tell the story by myself in, in a, like a witty way and be funny with it. And it didn't get a great reaction. <laughs> I mean, Man, that's I a liked tough it. needle to thread. I know. And then I, uh-huh. I'm such good, you know, such a fan. I'm friends with Dan Cummins, who does Time Suck podcasts and mm-hmm. Scared to Death and these other huge podcasts now. I couldn't get his voice out of my head when I would be try to be funny telling it. I could hear myself right. sounding like him, and I'm like, you got to stop. You're you're becoming an an impression of Dan Cummins' time sock. So, yeah, I just I just went straight at it, make everybody happy. Nice. You know, I went through something similar with the you know Truth and Justice evolved for a season. Same thing from COVID as like we are the subject we were working with died of COVID in prison. Yeah, I was fucked. I couldn't travel anywhere. I couldn't get records from any. So we did a whole season of episodic just. Well, actually, that's where True Crime Binge came from because I just started yeah. interviewing other podcasters just to, and you know how it is on the business yeah. end of it. Like, you got a contract, you got ads yeah. that are sold, you got to put have an you episode. Got, <laughs> I would, yeah, I always say people are like, when things are getting really busy with uh, with the case or there's a lull in the case, people are like, oh, Bob, just take a week off. I'm like, you don't, it doesn't yeah. work. Like, you don't get to take a week off. <laughs> are, you a, are you a fan of the, the podcast Culpable? Have yeah, you heard it? Yeah. Yep. Um, Black Mountain Media, you know, they were the creators of it. I'm, I'm mm-hmm. friends with them, and I, I should plug this because it's coming out very soon, but I was part of uh, what, what was originally planned to be season two of Culpable, but um, it's ended up being called something else, and it's going to be its own series now. So, really? I, 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 yeah, I got hired to work with uh, their investigative journalist, Jessica Knoll, who's super talented and has the, the work ethic of uh, – I mean, you know, a, a Russian housewife in the 1920s, like just mm. incredible work ethic and, and really good at investigating. And we um, we really did some great stuff on that. Like when it comes out, I th- I'm trying to just think in my head if I'm pausing it's because I'm trying to think if I'm allowed to tell the name. I'll just tell it. It's going to be called Undetermined as far as okay, Undetermined. And it should be coming out. It was supposed to come out in August originally, but there's been a couple developments that we have mm-hmm. to explore and uh i you know i went for a week to new orleans with jessica and a producer and we we did some really cool stuff like it's people are i think are really going to enjoy it. it's like a, an unsolved murder and we did an active investigation and usually that you know you raise some questions or whatever during the process but it's hard hard to solve anything right well, this one kind of goes to to an unusually high level. I'll just say that. 
I'm looking forward to it. I like, yeah. couple, as a matter of fact, unless I'm thinking of the wrong pot, but that was uh, the Andriacchio case, right? Yeah, sure was. Yeah, so I had I actually had Ray um, uh, Christian's mom on the show. Yeah, uh, as one of as one of those episodic, um, great uh, short form episodes. Yeah, I'm definitely looking looking forward to that. That sounds awesome. Yeah. So let's uh, let's let's move on. I want to talk a little. Have you kind of explained so you, that your your long form season season one was on the Burger Chef murders? And if you want to give people just kind of a Reader's Digest uh, uh, breakdown of what that case is and what they can expect over that season. Yeah. So back in the day, this happened in November of 1978. So back in the day. There were two big rival hamburger fast food chains, McDonald's and Burger Chef. And mm-hmm. in some areas at one point, Burger Chef had was bigger at one point. Mm-hmm. And then McDonald's became the juggernaut that it did and it surpassed Burger Chef. So at the time, to put it in context, like this is something that effectively happened in McDonald's. Like the chain was that well known. Right. So um, there's a robbery that occurs. An employee comes, swings by late at night after closing hours on a Friday um, at this Burger Chef restaurant in Speedway, Indiana, where the Indianapolis 500 happens, Just which is basically the west side of Indianapolis. But it is mm-hmm. its own town. And he notices that the back door is ajar. He had to stop by to help clean or whatever and hang out with his friends. Back door is open, it's a jar, and he walks in. There's a cash register, a drawer on the floor that's empty. He notices two of the female employees' uh, purses on a counter. Walks around to the office. The safe is open. There's no money in it. And he's like, well, we've been robbed, and no one's here. This is weird. So he calls his manager. His manager's like, call the police. Call the police. Police come out, and they're like, ah, it's just kids being kids. Probably out. Probably out partying at the underage nightclub that just opened up. You know, mm-hmm. they probably grabbed this money, went there. They'll be back later. Just just lock up, and you can open tomorrow for business. And uh, he's like, okay. So they did. Didn't process it as a crime scene. Nothing. And then the employees never make it home. Parents are concerned. They call police, and now police are starting to kind of like, well, okay, it's kind of weird. Maybe maybe we messed up. You know. And then by Sunday. There was some, uh, there was a couple or a guy just walking his dog out in the country, probably a 25 minute drive out toward, um, past Greenwood out in the country, which is south of that location. And he makes a pretty gruesome discovery. There's the bodies of these four teenage employees. So mm-hmm. he calls the police. They come out and now the Speedway Police Department's like, oh crap. We screwed up. Let's go back. I know what we can do. Let's go back to the to the restaurant and have the two officers that responded just kind of restage it as they as they remember it. <laughs> so Jesus they recreate Christ. a crime scene, photograph it, and everything. But admit what they did. At least they did that. They didn't try to pass it off mm-hmm. as real. They were like, we didn't take it seriously the first time. And but this is basically what it looked like. Well. It's, Great, but it's still not a crime scene. You've contaminated the hell out of it, right? They've right, been open right. for business for two days. So anyway, the um, everybody's working it, and then it goes for a long time. I mean, every agency in central Indiana had a hand in this. The FBI did. Everybody had their own suspects, their own theories. There were lo- just tens of thousands of tips pouring in that had to be ran down. 
Well, my buddy, Stony Van, he catches this case years later because it doesn't get solved as a cold case. Mm-hmm. And he uh, basically has to just go through blind. He's like, I'm just going to, it was just volumes and volumes of, of binders and case folders containing reports. And he just laid it all out. He's like, I'm just going to go through this one piece of paper at a time. And then I'm just going to take every suspect and just see if I can disprove them as suspects. And mm-hmm. everyone could quickly, you know, discount through an alibi or police had already found something that, you know, showed that they didn't do it. And then he stumbles upon the, the theory of, um, of, in the list of suspects from Sergeant Ken York from the Indiana State Police. And it was this robbery crew that was headed up by one guy. There were a total of five members, but the members didn't all rob together, but they all robbed with the main guy, right? And mm-hmm. uh, so he would just decide per job if he would who he would use. And then sometimes the 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 minions would rob together as a as a pairing on their own. So it ends up, long story short, you know the the victims. The reason why the crime hit so hard was you have four teenagers laid in the woods, which seemed to be execution style and murdered. You had, um, fresh in my memory here with Jane Freet was the assistant manager. She was found stabbed as if she had run away from the execution site. So you mm-hmm. had two, uh, Danny and Ruth were the name, first names laying face first next to each other. And they had been shot as if an execution, just laid down and then bump right. up. And they were shot multiple times. And they find Jane Free, who ran some distance um, to the right from where they were, halfway up a hill. And she was stabbed multiple times in the chest from, from behind, as if someone had caught her, pulled her to, stabbed her in the chest from behind over her shoulder. And they know mm-hmm. that because the blade was upside down. And... um then Mark Flemons, the fourth employee, is an African-American teenage boy, and he, he, he was found farther away, straight away, as if when the shots started ringing out, he just bolted. And his death is the most mysterious because there was no obvious cause of death um, as far as the murder, as a murder, a method of murder. He was found kind of in a head down position on his back. So his head is lower than his feet mm-hmm. and his feet are buckled underneath his butt as if he was knocked out cold right where he stood and just it dropped like a sack backwards. of potatoes. Yeah. Like yeah. you ever watch an MMA fight, somebody gets kicked in the face and they mm-hmm. just drop vertically straight down and yeah. fold over themselves. That's what he looked like. Mm-hmm. And he was at the base of a tree and the only injuries that were documented was a broken nose and he had unilateral like abrasions and bruising to each cheekbone so and it looked like one blow i mean i saw the autopsy photos and i spent a lot of time with them and it it looked like one clean blow with an object large enough that it covered enough mass to include his nose and both cheekbones and then because of his head down position on his back and being unconscious, the broken nose caused him to bleed, but down his throat, 
and he ended up drowning on his own blood. So it was very that was weird. What, that was the that what they determined was the cause of death. Was- the official findings: he asphyxiated on his own blood, and the, his injuries were not severe enough in the, in and of themselves to cause death. It was just this is like I took a baseball bat or something and smacked you across the face with it. Or m- my crazy theory is he was running head first in the complete darkness and ran face first into the tree in front of him. I was wondering the same felt, thing if he was yeah. that far away from the crime scene. Yeah, I I mean I totally subscribe to that theory. And the reason why is that these other people were gruesomely murdered, aggressively murdered. They wanted to make sure they were dead. They were shot several times mm. at different ranges until finally up close. And then Jane Freed, you know, stabbed several times, just ran down, just stabbed until the knife broke off in her chest. So they just hit this guy one time. And just were like, oh, that'll probably do it. Walked away. It doesn't make any sense, right? It doesn't match right. what went on with the other three victims. So I think it's possible, and Stoney's kind of the same theory, is that when Jane and, and Mark took off, as the shots began with Danny and Ruth, there was only one other person to chase somebody down, and they went after Jane. And then maybe the other guy, shot until he was out of bullets at mark but he's disappeared into the darkness who knows if he's gotten away or not hits smack first in this tree falls down and they're like well we gotta get out of here there were houses nearby like we've we've been too loud we've made too much noise we gotta get the hell out of here and they beat feet and then unfortunately your living witness ends up drowning on his own blood so i truly think that's what happened and as far as the suspects, you know, there's still people will almost get in fistfights to this day about who did this and who didn't. Cops mm-hmm. feel that passionately about it. People in the community, true crime podcast people almost come to blows over it if, if they're passionate and familiar with the case. Everybody has their own theory and suspects. Well, Sergeant York had uncovered this uh, robbery crew. And they end up getting jammed up. The The ringleader gets jammed up on some gun charges. And he and another guy end up confessing to every single Burger Chef murder, and there were a lot of them, that, mm-hmm. were, that were committed at that time in the greater Indianapolis area, except for one, they, the Avon Burger Chef, where four people got murdered. Go figure. They right. didn't confess to that one. So on their timeline, like as I break it down on my podcast, this is, you know, there's so many things to, to point to these guys. But if you know that the, this crew confessed in July of 1978 to robbing a burger chef, two burger chefs in August of 1978, a Kentucky Fried Chicken in September of 1978, and then two more burger chefs in the area in October of 1978. And then turn around three weeks later in November, a burger chef gets robbed, four employees get murdered. But we didn't do that one. We actually retired three weeks before that one happened. Hung right. up our, our, our robbery hat. Must have been some other crew. They got such a good haul from the last one. Yeah. They were, they were set for life. End of the Cayman right. Islands. Exactly. 500 bucks a pop. Yeah, they were rich. So yeah. they, uh, <laughs> it turns out, too, that, and I'm only stating this the the evidence here is because literally I've had people won't punch me in the face over this. Like I've had arguments with people that subscribe to other theories that have way less. And this is circumstantial evidence, but 
there's so much of it. So the the ringleader guy goes to jail for a little bit, and uh, someone that he's a celly, a cellmate of his, comes forward and says, hey, this guy's in here talking about murdering the people at the Burger Chef. He and this other guy that he lists by name did it. And the other guy that he mentioned by name was the last person seen with the gun. Well, that is what it is, right? Those are inmates telling another inmates. Not always super reliable, but it was interesting that they brought up the other guy's name who right. they were already looking at. Two, two employees of a neighboring business or one employee of a neighboring business and her boyfriend go walking behind the railroad tracks behind that burger chef that night and a, two men approach them and say, hey, what are you doing back here? And they're like, oh, we just, you know, I heard taking a walk. And these two men are like, well, we've had a lot of vandalism back here, so you need to beat it. Get out of here. So they do, but, the, you know, they have a two, three-minute conversation with these guys. They give information for a composite sketch of two people, which look strikingly similar to two people in this robbery crew. And then the girl, at least we know through reports, that she was showed a mug book, like a gel mug book full of photos of people that had been in there for robbery. So not uh-huh. like a six-person photo array of people that look similar. Just open up the book and start scrolling through it. These are all the robbers we know about. And right. boom, picks the guy that I refer to as dog catcher, because he was a dog catcher um, <laughs> in my podcast, and says, that guy was there. He was one of them. And at the time, they were like, well, we don't really know much about that guy. They go looking into him. Turns out he lives in a double on the other side of the wall of the main guy that they were looking into. The guy that really? confessed to robbing every burger chef in the greater Indianapolis area borders a wall with him. So they're like, well, that's weird, right? And uh, then that guy, I'm talking about dog catcher, his son comes forward and says, listen, I was at this party. My dad and his neighbor, they were in there talking in another room. I could, I could hear him. And they mentioned something about uh, they did a robbery in Avon and something went wrong and a bunch of a bunch of people got killed. And I think they said something about a Burger Chef restaurant. So they have that. Then the main guy, who I call Amigo on my podcast because he just knew everybody, his attorney comes forward to the Marion County Sheriff's Department. And in an interview, and they even I read the transcript, it even says in there that he was teared up during this statement coming in there. He's not supposed to do that because of attorney client privilege and says, Mm -hmm. listen, I can't tell you my client did this because that would violate attorney client privilege. But what I can tell you is that he did tell me that he cased that very same burger chef for three nights before that robbery happened. And I can tell you for a fact that this other guy, the dog catcher was there and did help murder those four kids. And there was one other person involved in addition to these two. So this guy's putting his career on the line by coming forward with this information. And now you can't use it, right? Because it's attorney-client privilege. But it let them know they're on the right page. And then all that that is laid out there, and there's more, still to this day, in fact, the, the, the detective supervisor who's in charge of managing this case right now Spoke with him on the phone and says, I just don't buy it. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to look for a different different option. And I'm like, how? 
you went to the Texas schools like I did. Like you, I mean, how can you discount all of this? You know, even especially as a detective, some defense attorney comes forward in tears. It says, I'm not supposed to do this, but I can't sleep at night knowing this. And I got to pass it on. This won't help you because you can't use my testimony, but you're on the right track. These are the guys. Go get them. Like, we're just going to discount that as, oh, that guy's probably lying. God, it's still, crazy. 40 years later, the case still unsolved. And it's going to continue to go unsolved because I think the person running the case, former colleague of mine, it's okay, but <laughs> he just doesn't. <laughs> He doesn't subscribe or prescribe to the theory, and I, it boggles my mind. And I've had other guys, the Indiana State Police, that I worked with for years, and they're like, how does he not buy into this thing? And I'm like, I don't know. I don't know, but he's in charge, so there you go. All right. Well, super interesting. Listeners, if you want to hear more about the Burger Chef murders, there's an entire season dedicated to them as the season one of 1041 his name is todd mccombus the podcast is called 1041 check it out it'll be your next true crime binge whether you want long form or short form he's got it all true crime and comedy all mixed in uh, todd thanks so much for joining me man it's been great to get to know you yeah bob stay in touch buddy enjoy it Crime Binge is an NBI Studios production and is distributed by Audioboom. Produced and edited by Mike Bussing. Music and artwork by Shane Yoder of PutThemInASong.com. Our website, TrueCrimeBinge.com, was created by Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com. If you're a listener and would like to recommend a future guest or a podcaster that would like to request an interview, you can do so right on our website. And again, that web address is TrueCrimeBinge.com. If you're enjoying the show, please do me a huge favor and take a minute to rate and review us on iTunes or whatever platform you're using to listen. And make sure you give us a follow on social media. We can be found everywhere at True Crime Binge. Thank you so much for listening and make sure you tune in next Wednesday morning for another podcaster, another case, and another True Crime Binge.